Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So today is part two of baptism, and if we do have time, we'll go into absolution, which is great because Luther sees absolution as an extension of baptism. If you recall, last week we introduced baptism by regaining a little bit of the biblical context. We saw how water appears at creation, at obviously the flood, the destruction and judgment of the ancient world. And then also at the Red Sea, where Israel is saved from her enemies and created, constituted to be God's chosen people. So what do we see then, biblically speaking, that in event after event after event, God uses water to create, God uses water to save. And that even in that saving, there's a duality, a destruction of the enemies and a, and a, and a positive saving of his people. We talked about how baptism fits this Old Testament typology perfectly. We talked about how Christ didn't just pull baptism out of thin air, say, I'm going to try to get all these people to believe, I'm just going to take regular water and try to get them to believe miraculous things about it, because it'd be fun. Uh, no, it comes with a rich and deep biblical, historical, and theological context. God uses water for these purposes. And so then we can see how Jesus to Nicodemus talks about baptism being born again, that language of creation, to be born anew, to become a new creation. We saw how um, St. Paul refers to, or excuse me, St. Peter refers to the flood as a type of baptism, where, we, where normally we think of the water and its destructive force. Peter says the, the same waters that destroyed the ancient world saved Noah and seven others. And so the baptism now saves us. The baptismal waters save us. And then St. Paul takes the Red Sea crossing and calls that a baptism as well. Okay, so we got the biblical context. We also dealt with maybe one of the biggest hurdles for um, non-sacramental Christians who are interested in Lutheranism or coming over. One of the biggest hurdles um, is, is this idea of well, I thought, I thought Jesus alone saves me, so therefore baptism can't save me. Right? Or another similar one, I thought, I thought that faith alone saves me, therefore baptism can't save me. And remember, if we picture this kind of on a horizontal plane in either or, like either the cross or baptism can't be both, either, either faith or baptism can't be both, if we think about it or conceptualize it that way, we're going to get it wrong. We want to conceptualize that by flipping it and conceptualizing it vertically. The cross alone, Jesus alone, saves through baptism. That's the delivery system of everything that Jesus did on the cross is given to you through the delivery system of baptism. So the cross alone saves. It is the, it is the substance Baptism saves, it is the instrument through which the substance comes to you, and faith saves. Faith receives baptism, grasps hold of God's promise in baptism, grasps hold of Christ and the cross, hidden within baptism. So the cross alone, 
saves, <laughs> baptism saves, faith alone saves. None of these are in contradiction one with the other. We, um, you can visually see that, by the way, on page 23 in your 2017 edition of the Small Catechism. Um, you can see that that graphic, beautifully depicted, where the cross is at the top and, and the baptismal shell representing the water, the three drops, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, down to the font, to you. It's that theology being communicated to us. By way of a very brief review, we covered this last week, but let's just review it once more. Page 23, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. So there's water plus these two things. The Word of God, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that baptismal formula, that Word of God. Okay? But then also the command of God. Just because you have the Word of God and the water doesn't mean it's a valid baptism unless it's in accordance with the command of God. When little kiddos baptize each other in the bathtub, that's not according to the command of God. You may have water, you may have the Word, but you don't have the command. So that's what's being described here. You, you need the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay, which is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here we see then that baptism is a means by which disciples are made. Jesus follows up these words, including teaching them Whatsoever I have commanded you. So baptism and teaching form the essence of discipleship, making a disciple. And you can see water in the word, you can see the command, all of those things of which Luther speaks in the, in the, uh, in the answer to what is baptism are here present. The Lord commands, make disciples, baptizing them. And you have the word with that water, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. By the way, baptizing is just a common Greek word. It just means to wash. In fact, I think it's in Mark 7. The word baptizing is, or baptism is used even for couches, which is always, always a kind, of, kind of sticks in the craw of those people who say, well, baptism doesn't mean anything, but you have to do it by being fully immersed. Have <laughs> you noticed that? <laughs> the, the, the same folks that say, the only folks that say you have to be fully immersed are the same folks that say baptism doesn't mean anything. Okay, go figure that one. But here's something that sticks in their, in their craw about it must be immersion in order to be a valid baptism. Do you really think that they're trucking, you know, their couches down across their backs down to the river and immersing their couches? And they're, no, but the text says they're baptizing their couches, washing their couches. So you can see that baptism just means washing. What's important is not the amount of water. What's important is that you have water with God's word. And we're going to highlight that a little bit later in our, in our course today. But it's the word of God that is powerful in and through the water. It's not the amount of water. Okay. All right, let's go to the second part, the bottom of 23. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Okay, So it works forgiveness of sins. Well, baptism obviously isn't a washing away of dirt from the body, but it's a washing away of sins, and thus an appeal 
to God for a clean conscience, to use the language of Peter in 1 Peter 3. And you've kind of got this really simple Christian math or algebra going on. The wages of sin is death. And when you die into death, you go into eternal death. So if you take away sin, you take away death. If you take away death, you take away eternal death. So to have your sins washed away, it works forgiveness of sins. Thus also, it rescues from death and the devil and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. Faith is included. Baptism isn't this magical spell or incantation or rite that's done to you um, that you're saved then apart from faith. No. Um, Faith believes this. Believes this. So it gives eternal salvation. Baptism gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Baptism and faith go together. And whereas we started at this class talking about how, how some non-sacramental Christians want to pit baptism and faith against each other. You know, it's either baptism that saves or it's faith that saves. What we see is that nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament is that ever done. Rather, always faith and baptism are spoken of synonymously. As comes in the very next section, the answer to this question, which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. We talked about how God isn't waiting up there at the judgment seat with a checklist of two boxes to make sure you've got both filled out. That's not, uh, that's not the way this works. If you believe, who do you believe in? Jesus. What does Jesus say? Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you believe, you're baptized. If you believe and are baptized, you are saved. And faith clings and grasps, grasps hold of that. You know, baptism is such a strength because the main arena in which the devil wants to attack us. I think we talked about this a little bit in the context of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. But the main arena that the devil wants to lead us into is this question of, do you have real faith? There's basically no way to win that. Because if you, if you do, and the more you assert, and the more vociferously you kind of put yourself forward, the, the more the temptation is, or the more the likelihood is, that you're going to fall into some sort of self-righteousness, justification. I'm saved because I have this, and Jones perishes because he doesn't. Right? Um, or on the other hand, you despair, and you say, well, I must not have real faith. I must be... One of those who will say on the last day, you know, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I knew, I knew you not. So the devil likes to play that game with faith with us. And do you have real faith or not? And if we fight that battle, you end up saying, well, yes, I have faith that I have faith. Ah, now you have faith that you have faith. Well, do you have faith that you have faith that you have faith? Ah, right? So we need some way out of this. And that some way out of this is baptism. Because God says, boom, it's done for you. I've done it. It's irrevocable. Can't be taken back. Yes, sir. Is it accurate to say, see here, that baptism creates faith, particularly in infants? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not one of these. So the question is, is it accurate to say that baptism creates faith? And, and the answer to that is yes. But I think we get all hung up on parsing this out, and I think it ends up being not very fruitful. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So the Word creates faith. Wherever the Word is, it can create faith, as our confessions say, 
wherever and whenever it pleases the Lord. And the very same is true in baptism, because what is baptism? Baptism is water and the word. So I don't get all hung up like, did this child not believe and now because of baptism they believe? That's not my business. God doesn't tell me that. Nor does God, I mean, I don't do the, like, just take this to its, I would mean I was sitting in the pulpit every Sunday proclaiming God's word, you know, waiting for God to assure me that each and every person had faith, right? Or that faith was being created or sustained or, or broadened or deepened. No, that's none of our business. So I can say that God creates faith whenever and wherever he pleases through his word. Baptism is water and his word. Of course, baptism can create faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, too, it, it behooves us not to lose context because the vast majority of infants, for example, who are baptized are, are the children of Christians. What were they doing for the nine months prior to being baptized? Coming to church every Sunday in mom's womb, hearing the word of God. John the Baptist leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. In all likelihood, she says, the Lord be with you. And what's ironic about that, of course, is the Lord is in her womb. <laughs> the Lord is very much with you. And, uh, and there's a beautiful picture because you've got Mary and Elizabeth, these two pregnant ladies, and they're embracing. And John the Baptist and Jesus in the womb are being squished up against each other. She says, the Lord be with you. And John's like, ah! <laughs> This is great. <laughs> so fantastic. So fantastic. So we can't lose the context that, you know, I have no reason to believe that, 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 a, that a fetus in the womb isn't a Christian. In fact, my default is, why wouldn't they be a Christian? When all of you who have had young kids know that they don't come out as atheists. They don't. They don't come out and, and you say to them, now Jesus loves you, and they go, I don't believe that Jesus exists. Show me sufficient evidence. I mean, this is, a, this is adult stuff that happens. Kids, kids don't put up those barriers and boundaries. My assumption is that all children who hear that Jesus loves them believe Jesus loves me. That's part of the beauty of children. It's part of why Christ always com commends us to children and says, if you want to be saved, become like one of these. Listen to what I say and receive it, just like they do. You know, that's the beauty and the blessing. So... So I don't get all hung up on this question of like, well, I've got to ascertain beyond the shadow of a doubt if this child possibly has faith. My assumption is if they've heard the word, they do have faith. And if not, then God will sort that out. And again, it's not my business. My business is to do what Christ gives me to do, which is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. It's up to God to create faith when and where he pleases. That's not my concern. Boy, this expands to everything we do as the church, isn't it? This is where, properly speaking, it's not our job to grow the church. It's our job to preach the word in season and out of season, to administer the sacraments faithfully, to remain faithful unto death, to not derivate from the things that God has given us to do, to not add, to not subtract, to not get fancy, to not get creative, to not think we're going to be more winsome than the Lord Jesus himself, um, but just to simply shoot straight the word of God, and God will work through that when and where he pleases. And sometimes it doesn't please him to work through that. <laughs> and then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's he going to say to you? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I told you to be faithful unto death, not to numerically grow the church, only I can do that. Right? 
So that's our goal then as Christians. And this, by the way, this, this bleeds through all the vocations. I'm kind of speaking as a pastor, but this bleeds through all the vocations and all the relationships and all the time we share God's word, whether that's as grandparents down the line or parents to our children or peer-to-peer, whatever that may be in our extended family. It's not our responsibility to create faith. It's our responsibility to let the word of God dwell in us richly and so richly that it flows out to those around us. Okay, so um, Christ always connects faith and baptism. The Bible always connects faith and baptism. It doesn't play these games of like, well, what if you, uh, you know, do you really believe, do you really have faith? Then is your baptism valid? I mean, if baptism was made valid on the basis of faith or not, how could it ever be certain? How could it ever be certain? If there's any ingredient that depends upon us, certainty goes out the window. So baptism is God's action, It's God's promise, it's God's doing, and the strength of it is faith can grasp hold of that in the midst of these sort of... Now, I should say that probably most Christians, most of the time, we don't go through these attacks on our faith. We understand, I believe, I have faith. And that's fine, that's great, that's actually healthy. (laughs) Don't long for this dark night of the soul that some Christians fall into where, or that God lays upon some Christians as a cross, where faith becomes a question. I mean, if you, if you have no doubts about your faith, wonderful. God be praised. In the, in the context of satanic attack or God laying this affliction upon us, when faith itself is the subject of controversy, faith needs something to grasp a hold of. Otherwise, again, you just end up having faith in your faith and trying to convince yourself that you have faith in your faith. Baptism is that, is that external that we can grasp a hold of and say, God has done this to me. God has performed this. It's 100% him and he has done it. And so, so my faith or not faith, my phony faith or true faith, my, you know, none of it matters. It didn't matter before, during, or after baptism. God has done this thing and I believe it. You see how beautiful that is? It's external. It's the things of God. And so it's untouchable. What can Satan say against that? Or what can your flesh say against that? Not, not a thing. I mean, then the only question is, does God lie? And that, by the way, if, you, if you're one of these that kind of constantly goes or perpetually goes through the stu- struggle of do I have true faith or not, every time that pops in your mind, change the question and say, the question isn't do I have true faith or not, the question is does God lie? That's just the other side of the coin. God does not lie. He has baptized me. I don't really care about faith. I just know that God does not lie and he hath said. It's good enough. In fact, that triumphs. So that's precisely what Revelation talks about, coming over, overcoming the devil, overcoming the dragon by the word of testimony, by the word of Christ, by the external things that God gives us. Okay, so that's baptism. Whoever does not believe, Jesus says, will be condemned. It's not a lack of baptism that condemns, it's a lack of faith. The other side of that coin is, if you are, if you are baptized but don't believe, you're condemned. It is unbelief that condemns, that's it. Okay, and that takes us into the new material. Before we head there, any, any questions, any comments, any, um, anything you want to clarify or add to? We're trying to keep things as basic as we can here. That's the goal. I sometimes fail at that, I think. Would, uh, would you contrast uh, what John the Baptist was doing theologically versus what happens in Christian baptism? I mean, 
or the meaning of uh, Jewish washing in contrast to Christian baptism. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, Jew Jewish ceremonial rites and washings are going on from the Old Testament forward, and we have indication that, that they're extra-biblical outside of the scriptures, sort of rites and rituals of washing. One even gets mentioned in that context I brought up earlier. Remember they're talking about, like, your disciples don't wash hands before they, you know, before they eat, that kind of thing. I mean, that doesn't have to do with, like, some ancient form of the coronavirus, and everyone was freaking out. <laughs> make sure that you sanitized. It was a rite and a ritual that had to do with washing. So you can see that this is like the historical milieu in which uh, ceremonial washings take place is rather large. You can even think of uh, like a prototype of baptism, the daily washing of the priests before their um, duties are done in the context of the, of the temple. So with that as a, with that as a, a sort of a, batter, a broader backdrop, John the Baptist comes and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's how Mark's gospel starts. No birth narrative, just boom, here's John the Baptist and here's what his baptism is, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In this sense, you can see that John's baptism is the core of Christ's baptism a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's also why you never find anywhere in the New Testament where it says, well, everybody got John's baptism, but then everybody had to be baptized again with Jesus' baptism. It never happens. Jesus doesn't say on the mount, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I know that you 11 have been baptized by John, but now you've got to be baptized by me before you can go baptize. No, never happens. So John's baptism is seen as sufficient in the early Christian church. There's only one example where it's not, and there's more there going on, and that's in Acts. One single example. And it's because those folks didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. How can you be baptized with John's baptism and not know who the Holy Spirit is? So Paul makes the... This is analogous to like, like if, if somebody came to my office and said, Hey, I'm interested, Pastor Rody, in the Lutheran Church. I said, Oh, are you baptized? They said, Yeah, absolutely. I said, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they said, Who is the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I think we need to baptize you. <laughs> right? Uh, same thing that Paul does there. Okay. That would be the one exception. So, so what do you see then? John's baptism is sufficient, but it's not yet the fullness of New Testament Christian baptism, um, which includes such additional and promises that, that redound backwards upon John's baptism, but really is try, it's trying to be seen as a new event, understood on its own terms and its own fullness, based on the resurrection of Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. And so as he baptizes us, he buries us into the tomb. Remember, this is Paul's theology. He buries us into that tomb that we might also rise to newness of life, that we might already be following him spiritually as second, third, fourth, fifth born, etc. from the dead. Our bodies soon to follow. Okay? So, I, I, so you can visualize this in a number of ways or make analogies in a number of ways, but I kind of look at John's baptism as having like the core, you know, the essence, and then Jesus' baptism being a fulfillment of that. It takes all of that forward and embellishes it out and embellishes that out in such a way that it goes back on John's baptism. All who are baptized with John's baptism don't need to like have this new baptism to get the extra stuff, right? Yeah. Okay, hopefully that's a... A clear enough and concise enough answer to a difficult question. Many, many books have been written on that, of course. All right. Let's move on then. So, page 24. 
And the third part of baptism, if you're looking on another source, uh, the third part, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. Okay, so there, there we see that the power of baptism resides not in water, but in the word. We've already said how that word creates faith. Paul even will draw the analogy that as God in the, at the dawn of time says, you know, everything's darkness, and he says, let there be light, and light comes out of the darkness. This is the exact thing that God does with his word by faith. When he says, believe, it's nothing but darkness of sin, and he says, believe, and there's the light of faith. So God's word is that powerful faith-creating, all-things-creating element, and he binds that to the water. So it's certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water that does these things, not to exclude faith. Thus the Catechism says, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a life-giving water, rich in grace. Now again, how are we going to say it's a life-giving water? Because if it takes away sin, it takes away... Death. So it is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. Now, as we see Titus chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to let God's own word kind of flesh out what it, the catechism means when it says, rich in grace, washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. So, Let's simply move on to St. Paul in Titus chapter 3. <coughs> he saved us through the washing of rebirth. Okay, so now you can see exactly how Paul is teaching. Like Jesus taught Nicodemus, you must be born again by water and the Spirit. So here is the washing of rebirth, the washing of being born again. Becoming an entirely new person, an entirely new creature and creation. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Now, who, who is the, who is the, um, the subject here? Or what word, rather, is the subject? He, God, saved us through the washing of rebirth. Whose, whose action, whose work is baptism, according to this text? God's. In fact, in vain, you will search the scriptures in vain looking for a single text that says baptism is man's action. But you have this and many other texts that describe baptism as God's action. God saved us. And I think if you want to get really specific here, it's the Father. The Father saved us through the washing of rebirth. He saved us through baptism and renewal. And renewal, being made new. By the Holy Spirit. So you can see that this is water and the Spirit. Washing of rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's just as Jesus said. To be born again by water and the Spirit. To be washed and thus be reborn. To be renewed by the Holy Spirit water and spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. Again, who's doing the work? God, he, the Father. 
the Father poured out on us generous, generously through who baptized you? Not Pastor Von Schnickensworth. <laughs> not Pastor Rody. Not Pastor Smith. Jesus baptized you. That's what this text says. The human element, the pastoral element, or if you weren't baptized by a pastor, that's fine too. Whatever the human element is, is completely immaterial. It doesn't matter. Look what the text says. The Father saved us through washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, the Father, poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. From the Father, through Jesus our Savior, to us. Jesus is our pastor. It's perfectly in keeping with the scriptures say. He's the pastor and bishop of our souls, St. Peter says. Who baptized you? The correct answer is Jesus. So he pours out this washing of rebirth, this renewal by the Holy Spirit, poured out on us graciously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So what's the picture here? The Father pours out the Spirit through his Son, and through the Son, the Spirit comes to us. This is one of, the, one of the many reasons why the Western Church got the creed right with the filioque. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque. That simply means and the Son. So the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son down to us. You can base that on a passage right here. So our brothers in the East that are still all rankled about that, they just got to get over it. Okay, this is such a beautiful picture that Paul is pointing. The Father pours out the Holy Spirit through Jesus to us in holy baptism, in this washing of rebirth. So that, having been justified by His grace, that's why Luther calls it a, a washing or a life-giving water rich in grace. Having been justified by His grace. Justice means declared right and righteous in God's sight. Being reckoned or accounted righteous in God's sight having been reckoned to be righteous in God's sight by His grace. And grace means excluding all of our works. That's what grace means. Paul defines it as exactly that. If it's works, it's not grace. If it's grace, it's not works. I think, that's, I think that that's Romans 11, but somebody knows for a fact, let me know. Having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs. What is, what is an heir? Generally speaking, who are the heirs? The heirs are the children. Now, what can you do to become the heir of Bill Gates? <laughs> You'd have to be born again. You'd have to be born as Bill Gates' son or daughter. Then you become an heir. So how do we become an heir of God? You can't unless you are born into God's family. If you are born into God's family then you, and God is your father, then you become an heir. And so you can see that that's precisely what Paul is teaching. We, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Sonship is, is inherent in that language. We might become the children of God. Heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Why just the hope of eternal life? Because we don't yet see it. God has promised it, but we don't yet have it. We don't yet see it, and so... We hope for those things that are not yet seen, but God has promised. And so we hope with a certain hope. It's not, gee, I hope God doesn't lie. I can't lie. 
He's true. Let God be true and all men be liars. And God has promised, so we hope until that promise is fulfilled. This, by the way, is, is why Paul says, there are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Faith goes away, because pretty soon we're going to see with our own eyes. Hope goes away, because pretty soon all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled, and there's no need to hope for anything. It's evident. But love never goes away. Love endures forever. So faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. All right, having the hope of eternal life, this is a trustworthy saying. I mean, there you have it. There you have it. Baptism is God's work. So much richness poured out on us, a lavish washing away of sin. Having been justified by His grace, we've become His children. Our inheritance is eternal life. And as we heard John say in our text this morning, in 1 John chapter 3, there's so much mystery and so much joy. We don't yet know what we will be, but we know that we will be like Jesus. I kind of—it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when you when you talk of, when you talk about what we will be, and people say, "Now, now, now," we don't know the first thing about that um, because we don't know what we'll be. Well, okay, that's true. We don't know the fullness of what we'll be, but that we can't use that that one scripture to mute all the other scriptures or to mute. What our, God, what our God-given abilities teach us about who Jesus is and what Jesus is. We shall be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that gorgeous? That actually is such a deeply philosophical and, and spiritual line, just right there, that we shall see him as he is. Because it really means the end of subjectivity, if you define subjectivity as that which can be uniquely or individually skewed, it's the end of subjectivity. We will all have an absolutely objective understanding of who God is. Now, it will be ours in that sense, subjective, and to one more, to one less. That In that sense, it will be subjective. But nonetheless, what we possess as individuals, as subjects, will be objectively true and shared by all. Okay, that takes us through the third part. To summarize, God does baptism. It's his word that has the power, and baptism does indeed save. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, etc. Okay? Oh, yes? Yes, Pastor. Uh, Dave told me if you don't get through past uh, part four, now I'm in trouble. So, no. <laughs> so don't take very long with this. All right. Uh, back to Rad's question. Uh, same question, but what if you put in, uh, add to that, uh, the anointing of oil, which the Jews did, and circumcision. That's a lot there. It's <laughs> a lot there. Part four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul likens baptism to circumcision, just a circumcision made without hands in Colossians. And he... He also, I mean, the difference there is whereas circumcision was, was just for the males, baptism is for all. And so there's this kind of broadening out, and you get to the essence of what circumcision meant and, and was to symbolize the, the cutting away of the sinful flesh is precisely what baptism does. Remember, it's the drowning of the old Adam in us. It's the cutting away and putting to death of the old Adam within us. So circumcision points us forward to what baptism truly and fully is. So there was circumcision, there was the, the anointing, that's the other one. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Jesus, of course, is called the Christ, which is the Messiah, the Anointed One. And this takes us back in the scriptures to the anointing of kings. Remember this? Um, you have the prophets running around anointing the kings. First Saul is anointed, then David, then Solomon. Okay. This anointing, to be an anointed one, is literally the Hebrew word Messiah. So this will kind of change your perspective on the, on the whole Old Testament, particularly those historic sections with the kings, because all the kings are messiahs. Are they true messiahs or are they false messiahs? Do they represent Christ or do they represent an antithesis to Christ? Well, the answer is both. Of course, most of them represent types of antichrists, anti-anointed ones, anti-messiahs. Okay? So there's our Old Testament background for this lang- New Testament language of antichrist. You know, we don't need to get all woo-woo out here with the evangelicals. You know, get our lawn chairs out on a cliff and wait to be left behind or whatever it's, we're supposed to do. Um, we need to be biblical, and we need to realize that this, this language of antichrist doesn't just pop up in some sort of weird New Testament pseudo-Pentecostal environment. It, it originates in the Old Testament scriptures of a false king, of a false shepherd, of a false leader of God's people. Okay? That's the, at the essence, biblically, of what an antichrist is. Okay, well... All this to say that this anointing is what makes one a Messiah. And when Christ is baptized, when Christ is baptized, as soon as he comes up out of the waters, remember what comes down upon him? The Holy Spirit, in the image of a dove, but the Holy Spirit descends upon him, anoints him. Here is the Christ, anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, you see. So what does it mean then, what does it mean for us to be baptized in Christ and with Christ? It means that as we join those waters, to use Paul's language, the Father is saving us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom, it is the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us. Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit in baptism. Do you see this? Christ is the capital C Christ. We are, as Luther says, small c Christ. Small m messiahs. Small a anointed ones. Now, obviously, and and thank you for bringing this up, obviously there's a a categorical difference between Christ and us. Christ is, is the creator and we are creatures. Christ is the... Uh, everlasting son of the Father, and we are sons through holy baptism. So there are very important distinctions to be made here. Yet nonetheless, the unity stressed in the New Testament must be set forward, and that is that Christ is anointed with the Spirit so that we might be anointed with the Spirit. The capital C Christ makes us into small c Christ. The capital S Son makes us into small S Sons, and so forth. Okay, Does that make sense? The so capital, the K, church, the capital K King could be the king of kings. King of kings, capital L, Lord, Lord of lords. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so in the early church, and this this somewhat having to do with this theology, um, but also just somewhat having to do with the practice of of washing, kind of you can see these things converge, but in the early church, as soon as you were baptized, you, you came up out of the waters, and you were, they would put a new robe on you, a white robe on you. Why? 
Paul says, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized have been clothed in Christ? And then they would pour oil out upon you. And like, not just a little bit here, like kind of enough to ruin your hairdo. Like just a whole bunch of oil dripping all over you. And the, the reason and the symbolism was given manyfold, but that was meant to represent the Holy Spirit. Now, as time goes along, represent the Holy Spirit gets changed to become the Holy Spirit, and thus you have confirmation with the oil becoming this actually secondary sacrament in the church. This is when Rome and the West start going off the rails, which ultimately culminates in the Reformation and us clearing our throats very politely and saying, um, we went off the rails. Uh, but you can, see, you can see from all of this, despite the error that developed, you can see at the source what the early Christians were thinking. This is an anointing. This is an anointing of the Spirit. Okay. So, very much in keeping with what Paul says, that the Father saved us through washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us. The Holy Spirit's being poured out on us so that we are anointed in baptism with the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Baptism is endless. Baptism is endless. We are just scratching the surface here, talking about circumcision and anointing and talking about the Old Testament things we've talked about. There's, there's far deeper and far more broad than we're able to cover here in just our Foundations of Faith class. Yes? Um, a quick question. I know in other denominations, they'll have, instead of baptism, they'll have an anointing. Or they said, we had an anointing for our pastor. We had an anointing for the children. Or... Um, how, how do Lutherans stand on that? Yeah, this is all neo-Pentecostalism. It's brand yeah. new in the church. Anything that's brand new in the church is bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Quick answer. You kind of don't even have to crack a Bible on that one. You can kind of be like, when did this show up? Oh, late 19th century? Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. It's not like the Holy Spirit was like, this just in. Forgot, for, <laughs> forgot something essential. <laughs> Gosh, what was I thinking? No, um, of course not. But that's what the, I mean, I, I'll use the phrase, I don't mean to be, well, maybe I do mean to be offensive, but I, that's what these heretics expect, expect us to believe. Like the Holy Spirit's like, this just in. Or they really honestly expect us to believe that the church for like 2,000 years has missed this. I mean, could you just, just stop and imagine the hubris of that? Just imagine the hundreds of theologians and the brilliant, I mean, what this really shows, just no contact with the church fathers. Because anyone who has any contact with the church fathers, you just realize you're way out of your depth. These guys understood more than anyone who's alive today. And the idea that you're going to like just swoop in in the 19th century and correct them, good luck. All of them. <laughs> Not one of them. All of them. Ah. Yeah, this is where, this is where like, second to the scriptures, and maybe even, maybe even existentially, first, is just have a knowledge of history, find out where that doctrine originated, and when it came into the church, and if it didn't come into the church in the first century with our Lord Jesus Christ, who handed over the faith once and for all, ah, uh, yeah, just kind of let that one go. Yeah, okay, sorry to get so wound up about that. <laughs> okay, um, let's, fourth part, look at this. We've got time. Fourth and final part. Confession and absolution next week. Fourth, what does such baptizing with water indicate? Now, baptism isn't a symbol, but it does indicate something. It does have, in fact, a kind of symbolic aspect to it. Okay, But let's talk about that, because there's a way in which we can see baptism symbolically, and yet what it's doing is in reality. 
It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die. First thing to take from these words, when you're baptized, you become entirely sinless and you'll never sin again. True or false? False, yeah. <laughs> I saw people picking up rocks. Yeah. Of course not. Of course not. When you are baptized, the old Adam, the sinful flesh, remains. And so baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, what's contrition mean? Sorrow. Sorrow, by daily sorrow and repentance, turning away from it, sorrowing over it, turning away from it. The old Adam should be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. Do you think he wants to be drowned and die? No. No, he doesn't. He wants to fight. Who is he going to fight against? The new man in you. And so to be baptized is not to have a resolution. To be baptized is in fact the opposite of that. It's to engage in a war and an ongoing war that will go until the day you die, and it's your own worst enemy, you. You. So not only do you have the devil and the world, you also have the you, the carbon copy of, your, of yourself, only sinful. Every bit, is, every bit as intelligent as you are on the good side, equally intelligent on the bad side. Yeah. So, but, but what does baptism do? So, so when, you, when you're immersed in those baptismal waters... What's being indicated or pictured there? Drowning, death. And when you come back up, what's being indicated? Resurrection, life. Okay, so the first half is that drowning, and that indicates that now as Christians, our whole lives, our lives are trying to drown the old Adam. And some people say he's a good swimmer, and yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so by daily contrition repentance, we want to drown him and kill him with all sins and evil desires. Okay, that's the first part. Now the second part, just as you go down in the water, you're drowning, you come up, resurrection, that a new man, a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Okay, simul justus et peccator, I'm at the same time a sinner and a saint, does not mean I am 100% ontologically a sinner and I'm only a saint because God declares me to be so. That is not what it means. That is not how anyone in the Lutheran tradition construes it up until the 20th century. Here you can see very clearly that simul justus et peccator at the same time sinner and saint is an ontological reality. That is a reality in your very being. You have an old Adam in you and a new man in you. And the problem, of course, is you don't get to really separate those all the time. It's not so neat in practice, is it? We can be like, oh, that's clearly my old Adam. I should leave him alone. Or <laughs> that's clearly my new man. I should definitely do that. It's this internal battle that takes place within us. This is where St. Paul in Romans 7 says, The good that I want to do, I do not. And the evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay. So baptism engages us in this spiritual warfare and wrestling match. Um, you can see here then the daily use of baptism. Luther advises that every single day we Christians make the sign of the cross and at bare minimum say the Our Father. The Our Father's baptismal prayer, we become his children in baptism. Okay? And so baptism reaches into every single day of our lives because every single day of our lives are about, on the one hand, crucifying, drowning the old Adam in us, 
and the new man daily emerging and arising to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. The beauty of this, and I think maybe, maybe something I'd like to emphasize, is that this needs, to be, this needs to become our identity. And this daily reality needs to be essential to our identity. You are not what you were or did yesterday. You wake up and you are a baptized person. You are a new creation. What, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday or the week before or the year before. What matters today is drown the old Adam today. And let that be enough. Don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. A very wise man said that. Worry about drowning him today. If you fail, if he ends up drowning you, guess what tomorrow holds? A new day. You go to bed and you practice death. You wake up in the morning and you practice resurrection. You make the sign of the cross. I'm a baptized Christian. Here we go. You got the best of me yesterday. I'm getting the best of you today. Okay? That's it. That's our mentality. Our mentality is on a daily basis. So many of our problems as human beings, we take on way too much. We think in terms of, of the week, of a month, of a year, of decades, of our whole lives, and we get demoralized. It's too heavy. So what we want to do is live this daily baptismal reality where every day we wake up and we say, God's washed me. I'm clean. I'm his son. It's time to fight. Every single day. Okay, and that's also very tangibly what it means when his mercies are new every morning. That's at the very heart of it. All right, so where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. We've spent a lot of time here already. We were therefore buried with him, buried with Jesus through baptism. I mean, this is yet one more example how baptism can't be our work. How on earth are you going to bury yourself with Jesus? You're not going to. Only God can do this. We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death. There's the first part. There's the... There's the drowning, the crucifying, the burying of the flesh. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Here's the rising, the emerging, the resurrection on a daily basis um, to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So the new man in us in the first place tries to drown and kill and keep the old man from getting his way. When the old man gets his way, what does the new man do? We go immediately to our Heavenly Father and we say, this is what sin did. It is no longer I who do it, St. Paul says, but sin that dwells in me. This is what sin that dwells in me did. Please forgive me. Please help me fight this. In other words, the new man first wages war against it. I write these things to you that you may not sin, St. John says. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one. And so if you do fall into those sins, you confess them. And that act of confession isn't an act of hypocrisy. It's an act of war. It's saying, sin, you got this far, but no further. Back out you go. And the absolution comes and washes that away. Now, already I'm talking about what in the context of baptism? Confession and absolution. That's why Luther sees confession and absolution as an extension of baptism. It's really inseparable because they're one and the same reality on a daily lived basis. All right, very quickly, or I should say, maybe it was quick for me, maybe not for you, but that was, uh, that was baptism in two sessions according to the small catechism. Next week, confession and absolution. Oh, no, 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 no. Next week, voters meeting. Two weeks, confession, absolution. All right, the Lord be with you.